Hello and welcome to the latest Money and Politics podcast. Now, it's been a few weeks since I last produced a column or podcast. Now, this lull hasn't been due to any lack of material, indeed far from it. There's been enough political activity over the last two months for several columns. So, why the dwindling output, you ask? Well, it's kind of indirectly related to the late Geoffrey Barnard. Regular listeners will know that I'm a bit of a fan of Barnard's and regularly pepper my output with his bon mot. You will doubtless be familiar with the phrase, Geoffrey Barnard is unwell. Now, though mainly known as the title of Keith Waterhouse's hilarious play about Barnard, the title actually comes from the strap line, which editors would place in the space where Bernard's column should have appeared that week, but didn't, due to the author being, shall we say, too tired and emotional. However, it wasn't the only strapline that they used. The other variant stated, quote, There is no Geoffrey Bernard column this week as it remarkably resembles the one he wrote last week. And so it was with me. Upon reading the first draft of several of my recent efforts, I quickly saw that they were basically reruns of columns I'd written on the range of topics from defence to the lingering paradox of Martin's leadership or to the problems besetting a faltering DUP. And I realised that a lot of things I was saying now are things that I've been saying for the last two years. Now that's not to say that everything that I forecast has happened, clearly it hasn't. But I do think I can justifiably lay claim to having identified the fault lines that now run through this government and that I identified them way back at the time of the negotiation of the programme for government. Indeed, some of you might recall that I set out seven criteria for government formation at the time. Now, put very, very simply, I opposed Fianna Fáil entering into the current arrangement of Fine Gael as its main partner, as I thought it was a fundamental denial of the fact that voters had rejected Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael at the February 2020 election. Now, strange enough, this still appears to come as news to the likes of Deputy Michael Creed and others, based on the selective leaking from last week's Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting. But 2020 was the second election in a row where Fine Gael emerged weaker than before. Now, this may appear to be me just stating the obvious, but I think it does need to be restated because I think a lot of people seem, seem to forget this. In the 2016 election, Fine Gael lost 16 seats after a hefty 10.5% swing against it. This enfeebled Fine Gael entered the 2020 election with the bright hopes of having Leo Varadkar revive its fortunes. The voters decided otherwise. They punished Fine Gael a second time around, cutting its seat numbers again by 12 more seats via a vote swing of 5% against Varadkar's Fine Gael. Now the point here is that in just under a decade, Fine Gael slumped from 76 seats and 36% of the vote to just 35 seats and 21% of the vote. Not that you would know this from the tone and attitude of that party or its current leader today. And that kind of slump is not a thousand miles away from what happened to Fianna Fáil during the period of 2011. Now, when you pull forward to 2016, you see that it actually had improved. However, the bottom line here is that Fine Gael had no mandate to govern in 2020. The problem was that no party had. The 2020 election produced a hung doll. Yes, Sinn Féin did well in 2020, and it did see a big jump in its support, not only as compared to the 2016 election, but compared to the 2019 locals and Europeans, where it lost seats all across the country. But the reality is that Sinn Féin in 2020 was just as far short as both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. We don't elect governments based on the most improved. So Michal Martin's Fianna Fáil 
which had also endured a bit of a political setback in 2020, lost seven seats. But he determined that the least worth outcome to this impasse was a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Green government, with him at the helm for the first two years. So was that decision the correct one? Well, it may have been the correct decision for Michal Martin, but I cannot see how it was the correct one for his party. Most polls, increasing, including the most recent Red Sea poll for the Sunday Business Post, published on Sunday, not only shows that Fianna Fáil doing worse than it was at election 2020, it has its support lower than it was in 2011, which was already the absolute low watermark for the party. Well, at least the low watermark so far. Now, I know from decades of experience that mid-term polling numbers rarely favour government parties, and that hitting 15% in the series of polls today is not an indication that the party will do this badly at the next election, be that in 12, 13 or 18 months' time. But experience also tells me that a government in which the Inter-Party Communications Coordination Trust is so fractured, as we saw last week, that we know that's, not, that's far from coasting for re-election. You do not convince voters that you're a steady pair of hands when those hands are busily engaged sending coarse finger gestures to your partners in government. Now, even before last week's pre-budget missive from the three Fine Gael junior ministers, I had concerns about the government's political ability and its instincts. And by the way, this applies to all three parties in government, though to be fair to the Green Party, they are not as assiduous as their partners are in pushing away their core support. Now, I can spend an entire column addressing the coordinated actions of the three junior ministers, but I'll limit myself to the comments I made on last Thursday's t- Today with Claire Byrne show on Ray RT Radio 1, with just one little s- small extra observation. And this observation concerns the identity of the junior ministers concerned. Because I think it's notable that Fine Gael opted to have these three particular junior ministers sign off in the Irish Independent article. So what do they have in common? No, clearly they're all Fine Gaelers, and they're all seen as being close to Leo Varadkar. But they have something else in common. Because each of them is assigned to a government department where the senior minister is a Fianna Fáiler. So Peter Burke is Michal Martinus Jr. at the Departments of Foreign Affairs and Defence. Jennifer Carol McNeil is Michael McGrath's junior minister at the Department of Finance, while Martin Hayden is Charlie McConlogue's junior at the Department of Agriculture. And this explains why a heavy hitter and a high-profile person like Neil Richmond was not asked to add his name. After all, his senior minister is Simon Coveney, and what would be the point of having Neil Richmond sign a letter because it wouldn't give this extra stinking power that Fine Gael headquarters wanted? So, back to this government's uncanny ability to drive away support. It was a former British Labour Home Secretary. Actually, I can't recall, and I haven't been able to find a citation to say whether it was Jack Straw or Dr John Reid, though I think it was one of them, who famously observed that somewhere deep in every minister's department there's a civil servant working on a policy proposal or initiative which could well see that minister's career end in tears. Well, this Irish government, this current government of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in particular, seem to be determined to go one better. They've decided to cut out the middleman because the career-ending policies come for the ministers these days, not the civil servants in some dark basement. Now, you might think this is an unfair accusation, but can I point you to the reporting yesterday's Sunday Business Post of an OECD review of policy-making in Ireland, which has found that Irish civil servants believe that they are being sidelined by ministers and that they resent the over-reliance by the government on public consultations. Though, as we have discovered, and I'm going to explain now as well, not every public consultation 
is awaiting the view of the public. In many cases, we will see that but these public consultations are loaded in such a way as that they come up with the decision that they're supposed to come up with. So we take Health Minister Stephen Donnelly's latest plan to put health warning labels on alcohol products. Now, not only will this measure not come into effect until May 2026, it will have no impact on either exports or imports of alcohol. Therefore, under Minister Donnelly's own plan, the labels warning of the health dangers of excessive alcohol consumption will only appear on Irish-made products sold in the Irish market. Therefore, imported competitor products will not have to destroy their branding or vandalise it in the same way. Such is the desperation of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael ministers to find their smoking ban or plastic bag tax moment that they are content to mount any nanny state bandwagon. And unless I seriously misread the history of both parties, neither party, well, maybe I make an exception for Fine Gael, neither party has based its reputation on being a nanny state party. So if this government or this minister was seriously committed to alcohol labelling, they would have produced the regulations in the first few months of entering office so that they could oversee its rollout and implementation. Right now, all we have is a gesture. We have the image of a minister signing an order. That's not government. It's amateur performance art. And it's amateur performance art which is turning away the audience. By the way, the same applies to the damaging government source spin and speculation about plans to amend or to change or to alter or to otherwise diminish the triple lock on overseas troop deployments. The recent volt fast, or maybe the phrase I'm struggling for here is flip-flopping, from the Tarnish to Michal Martin is difficult to understand in the context of A, the public's attitudes, or B, his party stated policies, indeed his own very clear policy statement from only a few months ago. Fianna Fáil's very clearly stated position on page 138 of its February 2020 election manifesto read as follows, and I quote, Fianna Fáil reaffirms its commitment to the retention of the triple lock of UN mandate or authorisation, government and doll approval prior to committing Defence Force personnel and overseas service. Ireland has correctly conferred primacy to the UN since joining in 1955, working with other UN members in supporting international action in areas such as disarmament, peacekeeping across its full spectrum, humanitarian development actions and human rights implementation. End of quote. Now, I had a hand in writing part of the Defence Manifesto for 2020. This wording wasn't actually mine, so I can only assume that it came from the party leader or from the party itself and it is far stronger than anything I would have written and I have no problems with that. Now, this Fianna Fáil Manifesto commitment on defence largely informed the 2020 programme for government because it in turn states on page 115 the government will ensure that all overseas operations will be conducted in line with our position of military neutrality and will be subject to a triple lock of UN government and doll approval. Now, that couldn't be clearer. But we don't have to go back to 2020 to find such a clear statement of commitment. The following is from a doll response from the Taoiseach, or the then Taoiseach, Michal Martin, on November 22nd, 2022, when he was addressing uh, Deputy Boyd Barris, and I think with Deputy Paul Murphy as well. Michal Martin said, and I quote, the government has no intention of changing its current policy in respect of neutrality. There is no galloping towards new alliances or anything like that. The deputy consistently makes that false assertion in the House, but that is not the case. 
end quote, and apologies to every person from Cork. Though this reply was made many months after the brutal assault on Ukraine by Putin's Russia, we are now told by informed sources that the triple lock is no longer fit for purpose and must be changed. Now that seems odd to me, because although the phrase triple lock has only really come into parlance in the last 20 years or so, particularly in the context of the Nice and Lisbon Treaty referenda, the actual mechanism itself, the piece of legislation that underpins it, is from the 1954 and primarily the 1960 Defence Act. So are the sources close to the tarnished and close to the department saying that more has changed between February 2022 and today to render the triple long, longer fit for purpose than had changed between the entirety of the time between 1960 and February 2022? Is that really seriously what they're saying? Yes, I accept that Finland and Sweden have applied for NATO membership and these have been two traditional partners on overseas peacekeeping missions. But the fact that they're members of NATO doesn't prevent us still partnering them on UN peacekeeping missions. There's a very sensible and very sane reason for why they want to join NATO. Because they have a land boundary, a land border with Putin's Russia. So I can see why they have decided to join NATO. But does that logic necessarily apply to us? Though I support and back the triple lock mechanism, I d I st still, I don't fetishise it. It is a policy, and like all policies, it should be regularly reviewed. But this review should have both an expert and a political component. One of the core functions of a political party is policy formation. But what is the role for parliamentarians, particularly Fianna Fáil or Rochtas members in the process, envisaged by Antonister? Right now it appears that he thinks that for their role in this is knuckle under and follow the leader. Now, I can totally understand why some people want to see us as full members of NATO. I might disagree with this view, but I still respect it as a sincerely held position. However, I do not think it unreasonable to ask if we should not first focus on making our defence forces fit for purpose before taking up some yet-to-be-defined changes to our long-standing policy of military neutrality. It is not possible to overstate the perilous state in which our defence forces currently are. And I've been flagging this for five or six years now. I have talked about the decade of neglect by previous governments. I have talked about the cutbacks in defence. I have talked about the major problems, not just in recruiting additional, uh, additional members of the defence forces, but in particular retaining real expertise, particularly in the area of cyber security. A little over 20 years ago, there were 10,500 serving members of the defence forces and we had about 830, 840 troops serving overseas at any given time. As a result of the global crash, there was a temporary cut in the Defence Force numbers made in 2010-2011 to cut it from 10,500 to 9,500, but that was made as a temporary cut. Simon Coveney in 2015 made that temporary cut permanent, and he brought the size of the Defence Forces down to 9,500. But that was the establishment figure, that was the figure on paper. In reality, there was only 9,000 troops in the Defence Forces at the time. That number has now fallen to 8,000 and indeed has fallen below 8,000 and only a couple of weeks ago it was 7,800. We have a major problem. The Commission on the Defence Forces, which reported well over 18 months ago, recommended that we needed a defence force as a minimum of 11,500. That was what they called level of and two ambitions, which was basically what we did have 20 years ago. We should seriously be looking at moving to the level of a three ambitions as set out in that report. But even to get to level of ambition two, we need to recruit an additional 
3,000, actually a little over that, members of the Defence Forces between now and 2028. That is going to be a huge challenge at a time when the Gardaí is also on demand and we can argue that they're probably, and probably even if the Garda strength was up to its full 15,000, it wouldn't be what we require. So I think there's a much bigger problem on our defence policy than the triple lock. And I think all of us should park this silly argument over the triple lock until such time as we have a defence forces that is capable of delivering national all-island defence. And at that point, then let us have a sane political argument. But you do not do this in the last few week, the last few months or the last year of a term of government. Now, I happen to agree with the arguments made by Professor Roger McGinty of Durham University in his blog, Ireland, the value of foreign and security policy quirk, when he says, and I quote, This is precisely the moment when we need an unaligned movement with independent actors who can be peace entrepreneurs. NATO might be the right choice for some European countries, but that does not mean it is the right choice for all European countries. Indeed, the reference to non-aligned is important there, as because it was a Fianna Fáil core policy under Frank Hake and Sean Lamas to be part of the non-aligned movement in the early 60s in the face of the proliferation of nuclear arms. Now, all of this is beside the fact that the vast majority of voters back the existing triple lock policy, while also supporting increased investment in our national defence, especially on cyber security. The April 22 Irish Times Ipsos poll found, and I quote, Overwhelming support for the retention of Ireland's current model of military neutrality. Two-thirds of voters do not want to see any change in neutrality, with less than a quarter, 24%, in favour of a change. End quote. So, is it wise for Michal Martin to start inviting others to investigate some new yet-to-be-identified government defence policy that he knows he will never actually put in place, and it is likely that there will be an election before his consultation process has completed and the necessary legislation drafted, never mind passed? And that's, of course, the aim of all this talk and of all this speculation from Michal Martin over the last two to three months. It's not to persuade the vast majority of voters to change their mind. And that the real scene of his Damascene triple lock conversion is closer to the Schumann roundabout in Brussels than it is to Merrion Street. Now I could list several other policies including the Criminal Justice Incitement to Violence and Hatred of Hatred and Hate Offences Bill 2020 with its less than clear references to sex, gender and transgender, which would seem to contradict the, the earlier Gender Recognition Act. But let me finish with a different final example. And unlike the previous ones, this policy is actually popular with supporters of the party who is promoting it. It's just not popular with the supporters of the other two parties and many more besides. And this is the issue of roads and the determination of Green Ministers and Oireachtas members to block a raft of major road projects. The list of road projects being held up with the Green Party opposition at Cabinets is significant. And, now this is not claiming to be exhaustive, and I might indeed have got one or two of these wrong, but from just a quick perusal over the last couple of months' papers and looking at press releases from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs in particular, it seems to include the proposed M20 between Cork and Limerick, the N17 upgrade, the N4 upgrade, the Northern Relief Road in Mallow, uh, the upgrade of the Fosha Road to Cove, and the Killalay Castle Martyr Bypass. Now that's only a fraction of them. Most most of those are in the West and in Cork. And while the furore over Finnegale's demands for tax cuts damages trust between the two main parties in government, the continued blockage on major road projects has the capacity to see this government collapse. 
the Green Party knows it faces a tough election whenever it comes and many of its TDs know that they are already unlikely to ever be re-elected, even if the Dáil were to increase in 178 or 180 seats. But from their perspective, those would just be short-term losses. They also know that their own party brand and reputation would not survive any compromise over the roads programme. That is the line in the sand which has now been drawn. Their Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael colleagues know that failing to deliver on these long overdue road improvements, however, particularly the schemes across rural Ireland along the northwest and western corridor, will cost them seats and in many cases will cost them their own seats. This is the real political face-off that is bubbling away under the surface. And when it blows, it'll make the Fine Gael op-ed look every bit and insignificant and pointless as it really was. Last week's skirmish suggests that the internal cohesion needed to address this much bigger roads face-off does not exist. Now, I'm not predicting the government's going to fall. I do think things become very, very rocky as we get towards the budget. Now, we've seen in past budgets that the government has the capacity to get through those budgets. I think this one might be slightly different. I think the shot across Michael McGrath's bows in particular with the junior minister's uh, op-ed is worth noting. The fact that they have targeted Michael McGrath rather than Michael Martin suggests that they know who's going and who's staying. But I think even if the budget does get through and there is so much cash watching around that it's, it's hard to see how it doesn't. I think once everyone's mind is completely fixed on the next locals and the Europeans in the first week of June next year, I think things are going to get far rockier. And I think at that point the Greens have a big decision to make. I can see the Greens deciding this far and no further. And I can see them absolutely refusing to yield on the roads programme for one, but maybe other issues as well. Anyway, there we go. That's my first Mooney on Politics podcast for a couple of weeks. Sorry it's taken so long. I promise you it won't take long the next time. I think probably get trying to do these every week is a little bit unrealistic, but definitely every two weeks is absolutely achievable. So I'll leave it with you there. If anyone has any thoughts or notions, I'm putting together my summer reading list and I have about five or six titles on it so far. I'm going to add to that in the next few weeks and I plan to get it done in early June. So that's only about two weeks away. So if anyone has any ideas or proposals or suggestions as books that I might want to, that might want to see increased and put on that list, feel free to contact me on Twitter or to drop me an email, Derek at DerekMoney.ie and I'd be happy to have a look at them. Anyway, there we go. Uh, looking out the window now. Oh, by the way, this is Monday the 29th of May. It's around 3.30, 3.45 in the afternoon. It's an absolutely glorious day here and I think it's well past time that I stopped, I stopped talking into this microphone and that I went outside and enjoyed the sunshine. All right, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.